and save now. It's what was shouted uh, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Oh, thank you. Kathy wants to make sure I don't run too long. <laughs> Kidding. Uh, God's great work is salvation, guys, and we don't want to forget that. Hi, dear. Welcome. Good to see you. An old friend is back. Wow. Uh, Hosanna, God save, God save now. Uh, guys, we need saving. And uh, this Roe v. Wade is just a reminder to me. Um, sorry. Larry told me the other day the announcement had been made. And, uh, you know, you wait for something, you hope it comes, but you hold it lightly. Um, you know, J Jesus has said he's coming back, and you wait, and it seems like maybe it'll never be, and, and then suddenly it's going to be here. And uh, it's a great day. Yeah, it's a great day. God's moving. God is saving, and that's the big thing we want to remember. Absolutely. <laughs> On a much more mundane level, hot dogs and hamburgers, <laughs> I, I still need some help putting that picnic together for next Sunday. So if you can help, some of you have already signed up. This is, a, this is black and white, isn't it? God's saving and hot dogs and hamburgers. I don't, I don't know. That's where we're at. Uh, I still need some help. I'm going to meet with folks that are volunteering to help me right up here immediately after service, okay? And I also want to put a plug in. Uh, Larry, sorry, one more thing. You know, I remember with our girls picketing Stormont Vale because they performed abortions. And we would march around Topeka uh, for life. And then all of a sudden, uh, and by the way, this doesn't solve a lot of things. It just gives states the opportunity to do things a little differently, doesn't it? But how, how big a deal is that? Almost 50 years. Uh, Larry's going to be talking. Uh, he's going to be doing the teaching after Kent's first Sunday in July. Larry's going to take the balance of the month. His... Uh, his series is called uh, Postcards from Babylon. And really, he's going to be addressing sort of our cultural moment. What does it look like to be the church today in the time and the place we live? So I'm highly enthusiastic about that series coming up, and I hope you will be too, and you'll be here each day, each Sunday to hear it. Okay. Um, my, before I was married, before God blessed me, raised me out of the pit of despair, and gave me my <laughs> wife... Uh, yeah, my uh, brothers and uh, friends and I uh, did a lot of things together, some fine and some less fine, um, but we would routinely quote the refrain from a song when we found ourselves stuck in a situation or setting we didn't want to be in. We'd hope for one thing, we got something else, and it didn't look like we were going to be get at, able to get out of our situation and get to the thing or the place we wanted. And this was the refrain, Oh, Mama, can this really be the end to be stuck inside of Mobile with the Memphis Blues again? Now, I'm, I'm dating myself. How many here know that song? Who sang it? Just a few. Very few. So that's Bob Dylan, 1966. And the, that was the title 
of the song. If you listen to this, good luck with the lyrics. Like so many of his songs, it's like, what does that mean? I have no idea. But the refrain is the deal. So it's this description of, I'm stuck someplace. I wish I were not. I wish I were elsewhere. I wish life was different than it is. But here I am wanting something, desiring something, and not able to get there, not able to get out of one place and into another. There's also a U2 song that has a similar lyric, um, stuck in a moment, and I can't get out of it. You know, stuck in a moment, I can't get out of it. Uh, On a more serious note, when we're stuck in moments, and guys, these can be profound. This is semi-light starting out, Bob Dylan's lyrics, but... All of us probably at some time or another are going to find ourselves in a setting, in a situation in which all we can think of is escaping what's going on. All we can think about is I'm stuck and I just want out and I can't get out. What do I do? And when I am stuck in those moments, what do I do? How do I think? Uh, What do I respond with? What does that look like? That's from Psalm 40. We're going to be talking about that very theme this morning. David went through lots of challenges, of course. He doesn't tell us which one this reflects, but he is talking about this theme, and what you'll see in this song is it's a pretty good paradigm of life because he'll start by looking back, and he says, I had this experience in life in which I was stuck, and I couldn't, get out. I couldn't do anything to get myself out. And so I prayed, and I waited on God, and God delivered me. And then he gives some general observations on that. But then what you find out at the end of the song is that he's right back where he started. He's stuck in another moment. And you realize on this song there's this cycle in life on planet Earth where we may be blessed with all kinds of days and seasons in life <clears throat> excuse me, in which, <clears throat> excuse me, which life is good and, and we're, we feel blessed and, and all that's lovely and true and, and good and, we, and we're thankful for that, absolutely. But almost inevitably, all of us will find ourselves in times and places in life in which we live Psalm 40. And sometimes there's this sense of, I got through that, and so so that phase of life is over, and so now it's blue skies and green lights, and what you find is, well, it was nice, Uh, God delivered me, I got out of that, and, and then give time enough to roll along, and what do you find again? You find yourself stuck in another moment, stuck in another situation, and the theme repeats itself, and that is Psalm 40. If you've got your Bible or your app open, we're going to read there. I'm reading from the ESV, and we will take this chunks at a time so that we can focus on the big rocks that David's giving us. He says in the heading, it's to the choir master, and it's a song or a psalm of David. So he's going to start, verses 1 through 4, by looking back. He says... I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure, put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So here he's looking back on an experience he'd had. And he felt like, I'm stuck in this place and I can't get out. So he, he begins by saying, though, notice the first thing. In fact, it's right out of the gate. He says, I waited on God. Verse 1, I waited on God. I'm stuck. I'm in trouble. I don't want to be here. That was his past tense. But he says, so I gave that to God, and then I waited. And guys, one of the greatest demonstrations of faith 
for Christians is the willingness to do nothing. Sometimes it's to wait. That waiting, what you'll find throughout, especially the Old Testament, is that waiting is an indication of faith. Waiting on God. It's not sitting on my hands when I'm called to action. It's that I've given God something in prayer. I'm not able to do it myself, so I'm waiting on Him. And this is a theme that keeps coming up in the songs. And though we've only taken selected songs in this series thus far, it keeps coming up again and again. Psalm 25 None who wait for you will be put to shame. I wait all day long. For you I wait. Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Take courage, wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, be still before the Lord. Wait for him patiently. Those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Wait for the Lord, keep his way. On and on it goes. Think of Isaiah 40, it's the same thing. Those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. Waiting on God isn't doing nothing. It's faith, it's active faith, it's active trust in God, which is to say... I've given you this thing that's bigger than me, and I'm not able to do anything, so I'm trusting you. I'm giving it to you, and I'm trusting you. So waiting isn't doing nothing. It's active. It's trust, and it's faith. Sometimes it feels like the hardest thing to do. But David shows us that that is faith in action, the willingness and the ability to wait on God to deliver us. Waiting on God is faith and trust. And guys, this may sound uh, more doable on Sunday morning in a church service than it may prove to be. And, and by that I mean this. When David describes a circumstance, he says, I feel like I'm in a hole. And it's a deep hole. And I have no ladder. I'm constrained. And I can't get out. Or he says, it's like I'm standing in muck. I don't know if you guys have ever been in this typically clay with lots of rain saturated, and if you wear boots, sometimes farmers know about this, if you wear boots and you put a foot down and you lift your knee up and the boot stays below in the muck and the mire because it's so sticky. He says, that's what it's like. It's an effort to try and move my foot. I can't get any place quickly. So when he's describing that emotionally, I'm in a hole, I can't see out the top, I can't climb out, or I'm in this thick stuff that makes any kind of movement or progress seem impossible. Emotionally, you got to put yourself there to say, it's in those moments he's saying, that's when I wait on God. I'm desperate. I'd do anything I could to get out of the hole, to get out of the muck, but I can't, and I recognize that, and so I'm waiting on God to come through. Whatever that looks like, my trust is in God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay. I'm going to embrace the moment and wait on God to come through and do something else. Uh, what has God's help in your life and mine look like? If you look back, if you have any years of experience at all in the Lord, you've no doubt been tempted and tried, found yourself in situations in which you felt stuck. What have those looked like? I mean, if you rehearse in your own mind, that makes faith real, right? That God's story in Scripture inevitably becomes my story and your story, that experience. What does that look like? And when it's come up, this is a theme you'll see that David brings up again, have we turned around and declared what God did for us to others? Because that's what David does. So he's going through these cycles of life of trouble and desperation and prayer and deliverance and thanksgiving, and then he's starting again. But what you find is, just as this song starts out, he is singing God's praises to others because of God's deliverance from that. 
And it's something that's easy for us to forget. Sometimes we feel so relieved when God comes through for us that we just want to get on in life and we forget to turn around and say thank you. And, and really better than that, what you'll see in a little bit here, is that there's this sense of uh, obligation that it's not just to God that we give thanks, but that we honor God by declaring what he's done for us to others that those answered prayers sort of become deficient if we don't turn around <clears throat> excuse me and say thank you and not only say thank you to God but say but tell others what God has done for us in those challenging moments you can do that on social media personal relationships small groups uh, am i waiting on God so if i'm in that moment now am i waiting on God have i given that thing to God am i trusting him and if he's already delivered me am i making that known to others uh, verses 4 and 5, in trouble and times of need, we trust God instead of other inadequate options since it's God that acts to save us. And then those who trust God and see his deliverances become heralds of his saving grace. You see that in verses 4 and 5. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie, <clears throat> you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. David says that the person who decides to trust God in his needs is blessed and successful in the best of ways. That, that notion of waiting on God instead of taking things into my own hand. Uh, what are the ways that we resort to or tend to resort to when we are in the hole in the ground or in the miry clay? Kathy and I were talking about this this week. You know, a lot of times what you'll see, I may be, I may be in a marriage, I may have a relationship with a friend that's turned south, I may be in a lousy job. I could have all kinds of challenges, temptations, stuck moments or places. And I may say, I can't do anything about it. And so instead of just praying and waiting, what I tend to do is I seek pain relief, pain management. Biblical counselors know this. A lot of times someone will sit down with you and you realize what they really want is pain relief, pain management. They're, they feel a sort of desperation or hopelessness. I can't fix it, so I just want to manage the pain. Uh, I was at a home inspection conference many years ago and there was a very funny, quirky guy that was not a home inspector, but his role was he was a sick house uh, inspector remedier. And he was telling home inspectors, guys, there's this whole market that you guys should be in. And his point was that people like him that measure in Pascal's air movement and moisture content, one thing and another, they were in short supply. He said, you can go anywhere you want, you can charge anything you want. He said, this is the deal. He said, they don't want their house fixed, they want pain relief. He said, the people that contact me, they're sick, their kids are sick, they're desperate. He said, all they want is pain relief. Well, that's oftentimes what we want too, isn't it? We're stuck, we might be waiting a bit, but we're just looking for pain management. And so then David says here, don't turn to the proud or to those who go astray after a lie. But a lot of times we're tempted to turn to other things. We use and abuse food. Drugs, sex, drink, you, you get the picture. I'm just trying to salve. I'm just trying to get a little relief. I can't fix it. I've waited. Relief hasn't come, and so I'm just seeking a little 
Pain management, just a little pain relief. That's a temptation for us that we want to say no to. It's difficult too, by the way, as someone who's lived this for sure. Listen to what Isaiah 31.1 says. A little different context, same thought. Isaiah wrote, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. So Israel's being threatened typically by Assyria. And so they're looking around, who can help me? Who can get me out of my stuck, threatened moment? He says, Who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they don't look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. They're not looking to the one they should. They're, they're looking around and they're asking somebody else, would you come please save me? Instead of saying to God, God, I'm stuck, would you show me what deliverance looks like? Would you help me patiently endure whatever's going on until you deign to save me? It struck me, you know, if you look back in American history, uh, think of not only Washington and Lincoln, but the presidents past them. When the nation was facing tough times, it was normal for them to call the nation to repentance and prayer. And you know, you see things going on in the nation today, and you know what you do not see? You do not see leaders calling for repentance and prayer. You know, California has been in some of the worst historic droughts and fires they've ever seen, and I've not heard one call out of that state, which is a grand, lovely place, to say we need to repent and pray and ask God to be our provision. It's not going on today, though historically in this country, that was normal. Civil war and other challenging times, it was a call from leadership to pray. Isaiah 41.10 says, fear not, I am with you. Now, if the God that created the universe says, don't be afraid, I'm with you, that should be enough, right? Whatever else is going on, the ultimate power, the ultimate resource Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's the thing, and David knew that. David knew that. God is the one he resorted to. Verse 5, which is neat, uh, David says that God's keeping care is constant, that it never ends. And he says, let me read that, he says... Uh, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. Your thoughts toward us, um, they are more than can be told. That whatever you or I go through, the thought is this. Uh, God's not just aware of what's going on. He doesn't just have objective knowledge about what's going on in your life and mine. He's constantly thinking of you. That his thoughts of you are continual. They never end. He's not just observing. He's thinking about you and what's best for you and what's going on in your setting and your situation. So you're never outside his thoughts. And because God is all loving and he's proven that through giving us Christ, we're, we're to take that as God is looking. He's not gone and absent. He's not unaware. His thoughts are toward me in this moment. And his saving deeds, I can count on those. Never out of his thoughts. Uh, think of Psalm 139 along that line. I think that's in your, uh, that reference is in your study sheet. Uh, verses 6 through 8, uh, this is talking about formality versus the heart. God doesn't want us to bring uh, stuff to him. He doesn't need stuff. He doesn't need any presents. You can't give him anything he doesn't already have save one. That's what he brings up here. Verse 6, he says, "...in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted." 
Now remember, David's not saying God hadn't stipulated sacrifices for Israel. I've sinned, God tells me take this kind of an animal, offer this kind of an offering. It's not that that hadn't been stipulated in the law, but people devolved to religious compunction. I go through the motions, but my heart may not be in it. And this was big time for Israel. So he says, in sacrifice and offering, you've not delighted. God doesn't need more animals. But you have given me an open ear. David says, I'm listening. Lord, I'm listening to you. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It's written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. You see, David's point is, God, I delight in you and your will, and your law is in my heart. In fact, that's almost New Covenant language. You remember the New Covenant? God said, I'll write my law on your heart. You know, instead of stone, you'll have hearts of flesh, and that's where my word will reside inside you instead of externally. And that, David knew, that's what God was after. Verses 6 and 7, David contrasts mere formality in worship with a heart set on him. And remember, David had seen this. You remember the story, uh, King Saul is losing his army and Samuel hasn't come and he wants to make offerings to Yahweh and get the Lord's help before the Philistines rout them. And so he makes a sacrifice. He brings the animals, he does the sacrifice. And it's all wrong because he's not trusting God. He's taken on a role he wasn't called to. And God says it's no good. And in fact, he says it's not only no good, I'm done with you as king. I'm going to find someone after my own heart. I'm going to replace you, a man of flesh, and I'm going to get a king in who reflects my heart, and that's David. And David knows it's not so important that I bring God that animal, that offering, that formal response to my sin or my need. What God's really after is my heart, my trust, my dependence on him. Isaiah 29, 13. By the way, this was cited by Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. That's what David's talking about. God does not want religious formality. And the world is full of it. And he's not interested in it. He's, he's after our hearts. He's after relationship. Uh, James Russell Lowell is a poet from an earlier generation in the United States. And if you've never read his Vision of Sir Lawnfall, the Vision of Sir Lawnfall, it's a great poem. It's a, it's a touching, emotionally compelling one. And it's really about a guy who had all the wealth, and he went out on search, this is a knight, for the Holy Grail, the, the, the cup of Christ. And he's searching long and hard. He leaves young and fit and wealthy and he returns poor and old and ragged, but it's at the end of his life when he gives some alms to a pauper that his eyes are opened, and it says this, this is part of the line there near the end, it says, the gift without the giver is bare. When he'd left his castle and was rich and wealthy, he'd thrown some coins at the pauper at the gate. It wasn't meaningful to him. It wasn't heartfelt. But the pauper is there on his return. And he shares his bread with him. And he realizes that was Christ all along. He, he, had, he had treated him lightly when he left because he was full of himself. But when he came back and had nothing, he realized 
And it says that the gift without the giver is bare. Those things he'd thrown were insignificant, but when he shared his heart and the last crust of bread he had with the pauper, he realized this was Christ all along. It's that sense of heart that God is after. It's not religious formality. Verses 7 and 8 are a little ambiguous, though we'll pick this up uh, when we close. Where he says, uh, you know, what's he talking about? The, the scroll of the book, it's written about me. Um, opinions on this differ a little bit. Some think David's saying, you remember parts of the law, especially Deuteronomy, were written for kings. And maybe David's saying, hey, you know, I've read the Torah, I've read the law, and those things addressed to me as king, those are binding on me, and so I'm going to fulfill those. Others think, no, he's just saying that the law was binding on anyone under the covenant, and that he's saying that's binding on me as well. In any regard, he said, I've got God's word, God's things, God's priorities are my priorities as well. Psalm 34, you remember we talked about taste and see. There's this notion that if we, if we come to know God, and if we come to know God through His Word, His Word becomes our delight. We get to know God through His Word. It becomes our delight. And if that hasn't happened for you, just spend more time in His Word. Eat more of that good meal. And what you'll find, it does become honey. It does become the best thing you can desire. And then we live out of that. We gain God's heart through God's Word. Verses 9, 10, and I'm bringing in uh, verse 16 here as well, just so that the theme uh, carries through. In faithfulness to God, we can't hold back declaring his salvation. We sing his praises. Again, it's this thought of, I give thanks when God has come through. Uh, Starting at verse 9 there, he says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I've not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I've not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. The the worshiping community got together and David declared what God had done. Verse 16, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Or other translations are the Lord be magnified. Notice what he says three times here in the negative. Verse 9, I have not restrained. Verse 9, I have not hidden. Verse 10, I have not concealed. David speaks in the negative that he hadn't done what he shouldn't do, that he hadn't hidden God's actions in his own life, that he declared those to others. You see that three times in verse 9. I have told, verse 10, I have spoken, verse 16, may those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord is great, or the Lord be magnified. David has this sense that he not only owes God thanks for his deliverance, but that he owes God's people the knowledge of what God had done. You know, I hope you guys have the experience, if you're in a small group or otherwise, that someone tells you what God did. Perhaps you prayed with them or for them about something, and then they say, this is how God answered it, and doesn't that encourage your faith? Because just like in this morning's announcements, you realize God's at work. God's showing up. This isn't pie in the sky. God is showing up. God's at work. And we hear that. We're encouraged by that when other people share what God's done in their life. And that's the call. So David says, basically, I wasn't negligent. 
that if I hadn't declared what God did for me, it would have been negligence on my part. That thanking God and telling others what God had done for me should be a given when he interacts on our behalf. God is so good and his provisions are so significant that to live under his grace and not speak of his goodness should not be an option. Now I do want to say this too. We try and qualify this when we go to applications. You and I, because of the time and the place we live, we have so much in view of God's common grace uh, that it's easy for life, uh, an abundantly blessed life, to seem normal. But friends, here's the deal. Uh, You could be a Christian in southern Mexico, Cuba, here on this side of the the continent, uh, parts of Africa, a lot of parts central and northern Africa, uh, North Korea, China, India, uh, and you may cry out to God for help, and God's answer may be your martyrdom, your death. Uh, you know, we do these, these stories out of Voice of the Martyr because these are people just like us that are loved by God, and they're in a hole, they're in a pit, and God doesn't deliver them the way we, when we pray and we think God's going to deliver us. But here's the thing. If we lived our entire lives on earth in pits of suffering, but understood because of what Christ has done for us, that we have eternal glory in heaven waiting for us. We have all we need to thank God personally and proclaim his excellencies to others. That salvation, the salvation we have, we embrace, no matter what this life looks like, we have all we need to thank God and publicly declare his goodness and his praise. Now, when we pray, we're hoping God's going to answer in some of the ways we're thinking. And I get that, and I'm good with that. And you know, if if I want out of a time of suffering, that's what I'm asking the Lord. But it's up to Him how He delivers. It's up to Him on how He responds. His, His lack of response according to my desires should not keep me from thanking Him and praising Him. That's the thing. So no matter where we are, no matter what's going on, we give those needs to God, we wait on Him, and whatever His answer is, we can afford to give Him thanks and proclaim His excellencies to any and everyone else because we know what we possess in Christ. Christ is ours and we are Christ and we'll be with Him forever where there's goodness and gladness and joy and pleasures forevermore and Psalm 36, rivers of delight in God's presence. So however hard or however much of a pit or a hole in the ground my life may feel like at any given moment, I have all I need to thank God and declare his goodness to others. Uh, Verses 11 and 12, God's faithfulness never ends. It's always on display. And this is, uh, I'll take just a little bit of time on this theme. Uh, He says, as uh, for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me, so I, I need help. So I know you'll show me mercy. I don't know what it'll look like necessarily, but Lord, I know I can count on your mercy in my current need. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. I can count on that. For, now here's his situation. Remember, he started looking back on a time God had delivered him, but what's he in again? He's he's in a, a similar situation again. Verse 12 is present tense. Evils have encompassed me. So now I'm not in a hole in the ground. Now I'm surrounded by trials. 
So I'm in a hole in the ground buried on one hand. I'm in miry clay in another experience. And here I'm surrounded as if troubles are an army. And now I'm in the middle and I'm surrounded by troubles. Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So in verse 11, David says, God's absolutely dependable that I know whatever else I'm going to get his mercy, his faithfulness to me. It's a given. That's absolutely a given. But he starts to encourage himself when he is viewing or facing verse 12. Evils beyond number and my own iniquities. David reveals that again, he's being surrounded by trouble and he says, his own evils are at least part of or all of the cause. Now, iniquities is a strong word. It's perversity. It's moral evil. It's fault. Uh, no, no, nothing ambiguous about it. And it's sin. <clears throat> so he says his iniquities have brought on this time in his life in which trouble feels like an army surrounding him so that he can't get out and get help. And so put this in perspective. In Psalm 19, David had prayed, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. So he says, Lord, you know, and that, when that song was being written, Lord, you know, um, show me the things that are going on and that I'm not aware of that are deficient, but also keep me back from presuming on you and sinning. There's this thought in the Old Testament about a sin of a high hand that I know I'm doing wrong and I'm doing it anyway. I'm, 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 I'm just going to break through and I'm going to do whatever I want. Here, David was not innocent of faults, of hidden faults. We don't know what the sin was. Was it presumptuous or not? But he knows that his current trouble were the fruit of his own sin, his iniquity. So this isn't just an external threat. It's someone else. I'm innocent and trouble comes along. He says, this is the fruit of what I've done. I'm surrounded by trouble because of what I did. And that contrast is the thing. Facing the fruit of his own sin, David will call out to God for help. Facing the fruit of his own sin. Guys, even if God saved us from every external threat, we would still be faced with the formidable challenges brought about by our own sin. By our own sin. You know, for many Christians, it's a surprise. I don't know if this has happened to you. I think it happens to pretty much all of us. If you hear the gospel... And you get, the, you get it, I've sinned and Jesus died for my sins. I'm trusting him. He's my savior. And, and for some of us, there's this happy time of there's this sense of forgiveness. I get it. My life has been changed. I'm not who I was. And if you, you can follow this progression, by the way, theologically, right through Romans. So Mike's not making this up. This is Romans 1, 2, and 3. We're all guilty. And you got atonement in Christ, 3. And Abraham's the model of faith, verse 4. And and just like we were born in Adam, now we've been born again in Jesus. We've got a new father, spiritual father. And, and in six, we were baptized with Christ. We've died. Died with Christ. But you get to seven, and what happens? The bottom falls out. So here you've got Paul saying, the things that I want to do, I'm not doing them. And the things I don't want to do, those are the things I'm doing. And this is the unhappy reality many 
many Christians find out. And it's this, it's that I am a new person in Christ, but that new glorious person who's got Christ's life is living inside the same body with this old, wretched, sinning self. And guys, we battle that to our last breath. And one of the the great things about uh, leaving this body in death or rapture, I'm good with either. No time soon, unless we're going together. My wife always cautions me on this. It's like, okay, yeah. <laughs> Careful, right? When you lose this body, you lose your sinful self, but it's with you otherwise. And so what we find is we go through Paul's thing. I thought I was past that. And I find out, oh, I'm not. Or I, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the brothers that was here this last week gave his testimony, one of the interns with Doc Sodzo, and I really appreciate what he said. He said, uh, Uh, Before Christ, he'd had substance abuse, substance abuse addictions, and God had saved him out of that. But then he also said, you know what, but I I basically, I'd be kidding you if if I said I wasn't still failing, I wasn't still sinning in ways that I'm not happy about, but I still see that going on. That's normal. That's the normal Christian life. And so David here is saying, it's not just that I face external threats, I got the stuff that I've brought on myself. I'm facing the fruit of my own sinful, deficient choices. But what's he doing? And I think this is, this is a big trick, I think, for, for us, a big, big message for us. What's he doing? He's still going to God, and he's still calling out for help. Guys, we can get God's grace wrong in a couple different directions. One is this. I can say... I'm saved and going to heaven. This is one of the accusations, by the way, if you say you believe in the eternal security of the believer. You mean you can do anything you want and you're still going to heaven? And I say, well, yeah. If you're Christ, he's given you eternal life. By definition, you can never lose it. That's what he says. John 10, Romans 8, you can't lose it. So that mindset, though, if I say that to myself, I'm presuming on the grace of God, on the costliness of of God's grace to me and my sin, right? Because I'm acting as if it's no deal that Jesus suffered, bled, and died for my sins, right? It's a certain kind of a denial of the grace of God that's being extended because I'm denying the costliness of God's grace to me in my sin. And I just, I'm going merrily along my way. I'm missing the mark entirely. But the other thing is this. Have you ever sinned, and maybe you said, I've sinned again, and you just get this sense of despair or hopelessness. I see the same sin, I did it again. Guys, I still see this, you know, I still see it, and I'm just like, Lord, you know, really? Can I get past this? And so maybe I may feel so bad that I don't even want to go to God because I'm in despair. It's like, Lord, it's the same thing. There's a certain denial of the grace of God in that as well because I'm acting as if, God didn't know about my sin in the moment. Do you, um, how many of your sins and mine were future when Jesus died to cover your sins? They were all future. How many of your sins did God know before the creation of the world that you would commit? Knew every one of them. You can't get more of God's love or grace, and you can't lose it. It's not predicated on your ability to be faithful. It's predicated on God's unbounded love and mercy and grace 
right? So that if I've blown it for the thousandth time, and I don't want to minimize this, I'll, I'll qualify this in just a second, I want to go back to God and I want to confess my sin and I want to receive forgiveness with joy and I want to commit whatever those challenges are that I've brought to my own life through my sin. I want to bring those to God. That's exactly what David did. It's exactly what David did. So we want to make sure on one hand we're not uh, acting as if God's grace to us in Christ was cheap. It was costly beyond asking. So we don't want to treat sin lightly. But the flip side is God has loved us in Christ unconditionally so that when we've blown it again, this is no surprise to God. We still go and we do what David did. We confess it. Now, here is the thing. Um, you remember when we looked through Psalm 32? It's not quite fake it until you make it. But you know, if I'm facing my sin again, uh, I might say something like this. I have said something like this. I've said, Lord, I know this is wrong because your word's clear, right? I don't feel bad about it, and I should. And so I confess, Lord, I've sinned, and I don't feel bad about it. And I need your heart, I need your mind, I need your emotion on this thing because I don't even have that. That's a deficiency. I can confess the deficiency. But I'm being true to God and God's word. So I can do that even if I don't feel the weight of that sin. I can say, Lord... I blew it again. I know it's wrong. It's clear in Scripture. And I don't, it doesn't feel that bad to me. And I confess that. My heart isn't tied up with your things as it should be. That's a deficiency. I confess that too. But here's the thing. I think I've got my Scriptures here. Maybe. Oh, guys. This was a crazy, this was a crazy fun week, but this message was put together on the fly. Okay? You're getting some of the fruit of that now. Uh, Isaiah 57, 15, that's it. God says this, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. So when we've blown it, we just want to humble ourselves and go before God and say, Lord, I blew it again. I confess it. And now because I've blown it, I've got these troubles and I don't know what to do with them. Would you not only forgive me because you will in Christ, but would you also show me how you want me to respond or what your deliverance in my new dilemma is, born of my own iniquities? That's what David was asking for, God to come in and help him, even though what was going on was the fruit of his own sin. Uh, prayer in need, those uh, last verses 13 through 17. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. So this is present tense. Started looking back, made some observations. At verse 12, we suddenly realize he's back in it again. Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. So there's an external threat, but that external threat appears to have been tied to his own sin, his own iniquity. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha, like, you're going to get it now. We've got you now. <clears throat> Verse 16, may all who seek you rejoice. This is one we looked at earlier. Those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Then he closes on this, as for me, I am poor and needy. He's feeling it now in the moment. But the Lord takes thought of me. Remember he said, God's always thinking of me. I know he's thinking of me now. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. <clears throat> Excuse me. We find David right back 
where this thing started in the first place, right back in the point of need. Uh, Job said, Job uh, chapter 5, verse 7, man is born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Do you know in your life, you share the same planet Job lived on, do you know that trouble is the norm for your life? Blue skies and green lights, guys, these are the exception. When you get them, enjoy them, savor them, absolutely. But it's not the norm. Trouble is the norm. Acts 14.22, related to persecution, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You know, when those Gentiles were believing in Jesus and the gospel and Jews also in that, the first early years of the church, for many of them to believe in Christ and to say so through baptism meant persecution, it meant imprisonment, and it meant death. Through many tribulations, you know, I may come to faith and find that a life was blue skies and green lights. I came to Christ and it went upside down and my life is filled with troubles. And I've still got all the cause in the world to thank God for what he's done for me in Christ. The most blessed of lives is taking place in a world in which sin still brings death of one form or another. Uh, now, I want to go back uh, real briefly because I want to point out you know, we say the scripture is all about Jesus, and Psalm 40 is all about Jesus. Uh, your reference, uh, Hebrews 2, I think is on your study sheet. Verse 9 is quoted of Jesus in Hebrews 2. I'll go down to uh, Hebrews 10, verses 4 through 10, cite Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. That's a passage talking about the necessity of a sacrifice that would adequately cover our guilt and sin. The writer says this, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All those sacrifices under the law, they were pictures, but they weren't payment for sin. They couldn't be. An animal can't take your place and mine. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, what did Jesus say when he came into the world? He quoted Psalm 40. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body You've prepared for me. Why a body? Because that body will become the sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Ultimately, they can't do anything for us. Then I said of Jesus, Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Psalm 40 was always about Jesus. He's the one that embraces you and I in our humanity. That's the Hebrews 2 passage. And he's the ultimate sacrifice for sin. That's the Hebrews 10 passage. It was the Lord Jesus who fulfilled God's good will to redeem us by replacing those temporary sacrifices that always anticipated a real satisfactory sacrifice when Jesus would come to the earth. It was Jesus who descended into our pit of sin and shame to lift us out. When you think of Philippians 2 and the descent of Jesus from heaven to the earth and to manhood, and then to death on the cross, the lowest form of humanity, if you will, that was what it took Christ to redeem us out of our pit of sin and despair. It was Jesus who continues to meet us and deliver us from our own mess and sin today. God's word was always about the Lord Jesus. It still is. Sometimes you see that very directly in Scripture Psalm 40 is one of those places. God's word is about Christ. The law, the sacrifices, David himself, Psalm 40 always meant, of course, to point us to Christ. The real question for us is, do we know Christ as Savior? If he died today, where are you going? And what's your hope? 
And if you say you hope for heaven, what's your hope of heaven based on? Christ is the only way to get you out of the pit of sin. There is no other way. And any other hope is a false hope. And you don't want to be one of those that stand before Christ and he says, I never knew you. And you say, but I went to church. Or you say, but I tithed, or I did this, or I do that, and none of those things will get you in. It's Christ or it's nothing. Have we trusted Christ? And if we have, are we, are we meeting with him in the scriptures? Are we doing what David did? Are we delighting in God as God's word in our heart? Because that's how we get his will and his sense of things. Are we delighting as David did in God? And guys, what you'll find is when that's the thing and the relationship is real, when trouble comes from the outside, we can pray and we can commit that to God and we can wait on him. And when trouble is the fruit of our own sins, we can still do the same thing. We confess our sin. We take that to God. We take him at his word. We've confessed. He's forgiven us. And we still ask him to help us out of the trouble, the mess that we made. And he'll come in and he'll help us with the mess that we made. That's the kind of Savior we need. That's the kind of loving Father we have. Well, if you would stand with me, and if the words of this prayer that's reflected out of Psalm 40 reflect your heart, why pray with me. Father, thank you for sending your Son to lift us out of the pit of sin, death, and despair. Help us to seek you diligently in prayer and to wait on you hopefully in confidence. Threats from outside and sin from within are not greater than your great, saving, redeeming love and help. In Jesus' name, amen.